You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. We are very honored to be able to uh, welcome Robert Cunningham uh, this morning um, as we're in breaks in between uh, uh, series and books that we're preaching through. Uh, When moving to Lexington over 10 years ago, I have greatly appreciated over this time his voice in certain cultural and theological topics. Uh, In fact, that's how we originally connected as we debated a bit on uh, Twitter, out of all places, uh, with the topic of contextualization. And most times that ends very badly, right? Um, But that actually started a a bit of a friendship between us. um, And even uh, as he was exposed to Gospel Collective Church uh, and our value in culture and theology. Um, On that note, he is the founder and director of Christ for Kentucky, um, which... uh, Again, really appreciate uh, his involvement in startup of that in the area. Uh, he's the former senior pastor of Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church, uh, where he served for 17 years and where he and his family still find a home at. Uh, he's a graduate of Covenant Theological Seminary and a current PhD candidate at the University of Leicester, uh, researching the role of religion in America's founding era. And he is a regular contributor for the Lexington Herald Leader, the religion and culture commentator for KSR, uh, and his writings and his work has been featured in uh, publications such as Christianity Today, World Magazine, and New York Times. Of course, out of all that, he is, of course, most proud of his marriage with his wife, Abby, and his four sons. And so this morning, will you uh, please uh, give a warm welcome to Robert Cunningham as our friend, brother, and co-laborer for the gospel comes up to preach God's word. Man, it, it is a joy to be with you. I'd forgotten until he said that in the first service that we had originally met via that cursed website Twitter. And uh, yeah, I don't even remember what we were debating, but did I win or did you win? How did that, how did that win? I think it was contextualization with Tim Keller because I was saying that I think that uh, what he had said yeah. uh, can be everywhere. You're like war cultural. Oh, uh, yeah. I think I won. So anyway, I won. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, it, it is a joy to be with you. It, what, the, my, one of the favorite parts about my new work is I'm, I'm, running, a, uh, I'm running a statewide uh, Christian nonprofit, uh, which allows me to freeze up as where I, I served for um, 17 years down the street of Tate's Creek Presbyterian. Now I'm able to do this type of thing, which is, this has become, quickly become one of my favorite parts of my new calling, is I'm able to uh, go throughout our state and, and, and preach and get exposed to all that God's doing in other churches um, across our state, and, and it's, it's overwhelming. It's, it's, it's overwhelmingly good that, that God is on the move. Um, I've gotten to know Eric a little bit. I've heard great things about the work of this church, uh, the first service. Uh, was was uh, met some lovely folks from it, but they were not as energetic as the second service. I don't know if there's like a, a church divide here, but you're you're clapping and into it and all that, and they were way in the back and uh, with a lot of emptiness up here. So, uh, all right, so yeah, it, it, you never know where to go when when asked to guest preach. Uh, I, I asked, Eric, is there anything you want me to? Anything you don't want to talk about, but you can bring the guest preacher in to yell at y'all about. Nothing going on there, so that's, that's good for you. Uh, he said, anything besides Luke and uh, your vision statement, I think you're going to be going through recently. So anyway, for whatever reason, the Lord landed me here in Mark chapter 6. It's a very strange passage, but I think once we get into it and 
realize um, what's going on here. I think it's very applicable. Mark 6, 1 through 6. I'm introduced it uh, this way. There's a very famous but admittedly overused quote from C.S. Lewis uh, from his Narnia series where Lucy is discussing Aslan uh, with Mr. Beaver. Of course, if you don't know, Aslan is the majestic lion uh, of the Narnia series who serves as the Jesus figure in Lewis's uh, children fantasy world that he created. Well, Lucy is intrigued by rumors of this lion Aslan, and she asks a, a, an understandable question. Well, is he safe? And, um, and uh, Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Now, if you've been around Christianity for a while, chances are you have heard that quoted many times. I don't know if you're allowed to be a pastor if you haven't referenced it at least once a sermon. Have you you, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so you're, you are officially an ordained minister. Thank you. It's a beautiful quote. There's a reason why the quote is used so much, because it resonates so deeply. It's a beautiful quote, but I wonder if you believe this to be true about Jesus, the Lion of Judah. I think the answer to that is probably a complicated one. It's not that we deny the kingship, the lordship, the might the majesty of King Jesus. But perhaps we view him, though we confess him to be a lion, perhaps we view him as a tamed lion, or maybe a better picture is a caged lion, like a lion in a zoo. I attended Covenant Seminary, as Eric said, in St. Louis, and one of the cool things about the city of St. Louis in particular is they have one of the best zoos in the country, but it actually is free to the public. And so uh, this kind of became a good form of entertainment and study break for a broke, you know, seminarian like myself. If it was a nice day and needed a break from studying, clear the air, clear the mind, we could always go over to the zoo, uh, walk around a bit. But I noticed something interesting uh, happening. The zoo kind of started to lose its mystique. When the zoo is free and you can just kind of slip over in and out whenever you want, the novelty kind of starts to wear off. And then you, once the kind of whole experience is demystified, you really start noticing uh, kind of how sad the entire zoo ordeal is. You have these majestic creatures caged up, just sitting around for tourists to take selfies with. I always found the gorillas in particular to have the most depressing existence of them all. Uh, at least they let the lions be outside, but the gorillas lived in the gorilla house, which was their attempt to make it seem like a cool place for the gorillas. But in reality, is this rock faux enclosure with no sunlight behind a thick glass wall, really not much to do except sit there while kids bang on the glass. I, I mean, when you stop to think about it, these are gorillas, for heaven's sake. Kids should not be able to mess with gorillas and survive that encounter. But here they are just sitting there in their depressing gorilla house, taking it as kids bang on their glass all day. Gorillas are not made to be domesticated. And it's sad to see something as mighty as a gorilla tamed. This is a good way to conceptualize our passage this morning, because it too is a sad picture. Because what we see is a tamed, domesticated Jesus. So in the chapters leading up to our passage for a bit of context here, Jesus has been wild and majestic. He calmed 
a raging storm, a, an entire legion of demon, demons, demonic forces, beg him for mercy. He raises the dead, the dead body of a little girl he raises from the dead. The majesty of Jesus up until this point in Mark has been breathtaking. But here in Mark 6, it seems the power of Jesus has been caged up. What has been majestic thus far in this story becomes, well, boring. Now, what could possibly domesticate the Lion of Judah? Well, the answer, candidly, is alarming because it's something that we in our context are very, very familiar with. Here is how I intend to come about the passage this morning. First, I just want to identify the problem. What's going on here in this strange passage? Because it is strange. I want to identify the problem, and then I want to consider the consequences of the problem. And then third, I want to talk about solutions to the problem. So essentially, I'm, this is what I'm doing this morning. What's the problem here? What are the consequences? What can we do about it? Let's start by diagnosing the problem that's taking place in this passage. It says this, he went away from there and came to his hometown. That's very important to note for reasons we're going to discuss in just a moment. Came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. On the Sabbath began to teach in the synagogues, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Okay, so through two, two verses, this is fairly typical of Jesus. He comes into town. He starts preaching. People are amazed. Who is this man? My goodness, who is this person who has come to town? But then things get derailed in verse 3. Wait a minute. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? So just as Jesus is about to win the town over, a stumbling block arises, and the stumbling block is familiarity. Wait, isn't that the town carpenter? Isn't, isn't that just Mary's son? I, I remember him playing in the streets. He you know, built me a table. He, he's not a big deal. This is just Jesus. Now, there's a huge problem. One that Jesus laments in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among those, his relatives, and of his own household. He is, here's what he's saying. I am revered. I am worshipped. I am adored. I am followed everywhere I go except among those who know me best. It's the insider's not the outsiders who fail to appreciate Jesus. He's too normal to be glorious, is the point of the passage. Familiarity has caged him up. Look at verse 5. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Is that not a fascinating verse from your Bible? Mighty Jesus could do no mighty works except a few token healings. Bottom line conclusion of this very strange passage. The greatest threat to the power and work of Jesus Christ is over-familiarity with Jesus Christ. And to be perfectly honest, what I just said should alarm all of us here. If Jesus had any metaphorical hometown in this moment of church history, would it not be American evangelical 
Christianity. I know that's quickly changing. I study the trends as well. Christianity is rapidly growing outside the West, particularly in Africa and Asia. But I've done enough international travel to know there is still no place, place like America when it comes to Christianity's presence and influence. Churches on every corner. Church here. There's a church there. There are churches everywhere. If Jesus had a 21st century hometown, a home most familiar with, influenced by, shaped by his presence, is it not American evangelicalism at this moment in history? Well, our passage is telling us this actually might be a huge problem. We who are most familiar with Jesus, viewing things through the lens of this passage could actually be the most in danger of missing Jesus. And that's the caution that we must consider from the passage. We have seen the problem. This overly familiar domestication of Jesus. Now, let's look at the consequences of this problem. Look with me at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That's interesting, isn't it? His familiarity gives way to offense. It's not hard to make this connection. Imagine yourself watching a young man grow up, being the peer of your children, friend, neighborhood kid, which you're all familiar with. You watched him grow up, and then that same one growing up and turning around one day and saying to you, repent and bow down to me as your Lord and Savior. I think we could see how that would feel offensive. It's one thing for him to show up into a village, which is what most of the Gospels are, are telling, for him to show up to a village where nobody knows him. He demonstrates his power and authority. He, he confounds the wisdom of the, of the day with his teaching and brilliance. He calls on people to repent and follow him. They can get behind that. After all, who is this mighty man who has come to town? But when he tries to establish authority and make demands and call for repentance towards those who know him well, that's more difficult for them to accept. And again, the applications for us are really obvious. When you preach Jesus into a context that has never heard of him, after, after communion or Lord's Supper, uh, you're going to get like a missions update. And I, I was there for the first service. It's compelling work that you all are, are supporting and, there, and you're going to hear a lot about Jesus going to kind of these unreached, unfamiliar lands. And when you come and, 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 and bring and preach Jesus into a context like that, radical allegiance only seems to be the natural application. To step into a world and say, I've got news for you. God has become man. And he has died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. And oh, by the way, he has risen from the dead and is going to return again. People hear that, who aren't familiar with that, and they say, oh yeah, that deserves my entire allegiance. But when you live in a cultural context where you hear songs of God becoming man over the speakers of department stores during the busiest time of the shopping year, his atoning cross is so common to us that it is our jewelry and our tattoos. His resurrection from the dead has morphed into a day of pastels and chocolate bunnies. 
when that domesticated Jesus turns around and says, repent and bow down to me as your Lord, it feels like your nursery rhymes telling you to bow down. An unimpressive, over-familiar, domesticated Jesus has no right to call upon you to bow down as Lord and Savior. So to those who are overly familiar with Jesus, his demands are not lovely, they're offensive. They are not powerful, they are silly. They are not life-giving, they are inconvenient. And there you have the stumbling block of our culture. The struggle of Christianity in our culture is that Christianity is viewed as merely a culture itself. Not true, not powerful, not life-giving, not eternally saving, merely a cultural phenomenon. And I'm telling you, this is a big problem. Look at verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus is astounded by the rejection and unbelief. Usually it says, throughout the Gospels, you'll hear this phrase a lot. He marveled at their belief. He marveled at their faith. But in his hometown, Jesus marvels at their unbelief. How? How could those who know him so well be the ones who do not believe? They of all people, his home, his friends, those insiders most familiar with him are the very ones refusing him. And then it gets really sad. That last phrase of the passage is kind of an offhanded phrase to conclude the story is disturbing. And he went about among the villages teaching. Do you know what that's saying? Jesus moved on. Just before our passage, he looked at a raging storm. He did not back down from that storm. He has looked at a demoniac, a possession of demons. He did not back down in the face of evil power. He stands over the corpse of a little girl and does not back down even from the power of death. But in the face of domestication, belittling, nominal, insulting, lukewarm familiarity, in the face of that opposition, he leaves town, leaves them alone, and hands them over to their unbelief. This condition is so offensive to him, so insulting, that in judgment, he leaves town and moves on. Do you know how scary that is for Western society? This is our greatest nightmare, that Jesus would have enough of our patronizing indifference and move on. Jesus will not be mocked. He will not be patronized like a zoo lion. The ultimate consequence of this condition is that the time will come when Jesus leaves us alone and hands us over to our sad, pitiful, familiar caricatures of Jesus. Now, what can we do about it? That's the warning, the consequence, but I don't want to leave you there. Final question to consider, what can we do about this? Because seriously, what are we supposed to do? Get less familiar with Jesus? Is going to church a bad thing? Is reading our Bibles and studying theology a bad thing? Aren't we supposed to get more familiar with Jesus? Of course. I would actually say the way to avoid what happens in our text is more Jesus, more familiarity. We just, here's the key, we just need to make sure that the Jesus we are getting familiar with is the true Jesus. Their problem 
Their problem in the passage was not that they were too familiar with Jesus. Their problem is they were too familiar with the wrong view of Jesus. They needed to unlearn a lot about what they had always thought about Jesus and get to know the true Jesus. Again, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Well, the answer is no. That's not who Jesus is. I mean, I guess the answer is yes. He is those things. He is the carpenter. But he also happens to be the son of God incarnate. He also is the radiance of God's glory. He also is the exact representation of God's nature. He also is the spotless righteousness of God in body. He also is a crucified Savior. He also is a resurrected Lord. He also is the soon-to-return judge of the living and the dead. He's not just a carpenter. He is Lord and Savior, and they need to see him as such. They needed to get familiar with the true Jesus, and so do we. One day, my friend and I were taking our usual break from studying and decided to head over to the zoo again. Now, like I said, by this point, we had kind of become pretty bored with the whole thing. And, I mean, how many times can you go look at these domesticated animals just sitting there? So we, we went this time, we had a different idea. We went to that poor, depressing gorilla house, and we tried to pick a fight with the gorillas. Now, we knew banging on the glass wouldn't do because everyone did that, and the gorillas were clearly used to that. So here was our plan. We got right near the glass found the alpha male, and stared him down and tried to look as mean as possible. And we weren't going to break eye contact or move until he did something. And so we just stood there looking growling and big and all that in front of the glass and just staring at him. And we could tell it was starting to get to him. Began pacing back and forth, obviously feeling like his dominance was being threatened. It turned into this little power standoff sort of thing, and we weren't backing down, especially the glass wall between us. Well, all of a sudden, this docile, domesticated gorilla finally did what gorillas do. He charged at us, lowered his shoulder into the glass, and when that didn't work, he started pounding on the glass and roaring. I did, did you know gorillas roar? Apparently, apparently they roar. I saw its teeth. Have you ever seen gorillas' teeth? It's pretty scary. I kid you not, families were screaming and sprinting for the exits. It was terrifying. And my friend and I turned in just kind of this impromptu bro moment, looked at each other and said, that was amazing. You can't get bored with a gorilla when a gorilla is being a gorilla. The cure to over-familiarity with the domesticated by culture Jesus is to stare him down until he roars. An unconstrained, uninhibited, and untamed Savior is what we in nominal Christian culture are desperate to recapture. And when I say recapture, I mean capture it all. Know Him. Not mere conceptualization, not the catechism answer. I mean the things that you confess to believe in piercing you to the core. You need to know the Jesus who literally said a word and galaxies sprang into existence and who still in this moment upholds and sustains all of existence with the word of his power. If Jesus slipped up for a moment, everything would cease to exist. That's what Jesus is doing as we speak. You need to know the Jesus who is so madly in love with fallen sinners like us that he would do what is unthinkable 
for a transcendent almighty God to do. Forsake the riches and glories of heaven and tear the boundaries of space and time to come for his people. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, he is willing to do it to have us as his own. You need to know the Jesus who routinely performed acts of miraculous power. Those stories, they're not childhood fantasies. They actually happened. Yes, I, an enlightened, educated, modern 21st century man, believes the Gospels are fact, not fiction. This guy walked on water. This guy healed people with a touch. This guy raised the dead. There was a person on this planet who did all those things. You need to know the Jesus who became your sin. I don't know you well, but I know this. You carry into this room massive amounts of sin and guilt and shame. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for all of us, though we try to hide it. But all the hiding and pretending in the world cannot negate the fact that it is a reality for all of us. Yes, but this Jesus actually took that. The righteous for the unrighteous, the clean for the unclean, the pure for the impure. He took it, not in some ethereal way. He intimately knew the rotten foulness of my failures. And with broad shoulders, he carried it to a cross to receive its judgment day. To stand before divine justice and without hesitation say, do what you must. I would rather this happen to me than to my people. You need to know the Jesus who broke the bounds of death and made a mockery of the grave. And in so doing, forever vindicated his name. Because he has risen, all that he said was true and all that he did worked. On Easter Sunday morning, he displayed once and for all that he is the one true God and that all other gods are sad, pitiful inventions of man. Jesus is Lord. There is no other. He's risen from the dead to prove it. You need to know the Jesus who is soon to return in the fullness of majesty and not a creature on earth is going to be left standing. His glory is going to bring every single one of us to our knees, either in joyful admiration to receive his salvation or in fearful trembling to receive condemnation. But either way, every knee is going to bow to this Jesus. You need to know the Jesus who's going to make all things new and all sadness become untrue. He will wipe every single tear that you have ever shed away. And you will be with him and he will be with us forever. We will worship for all eternity without a, mortem, without a moment of boredom forever and ever and ever. Rapturous joy forevermore. Amen. What do we most familiar with Jesus need? We need to let him out of his cage. We need to unlearn trite, pitiful, cultural caricatures of Jesus and learn, for many of us, relearn again the true Jesus. And by the way, as an application I cannot resist because I know this will be heavy on the hearts for many of, I celebrate you're a young church with young families and I know where parents go. I'm one of them in the throes of it right now. By the way, this is what your children need. One direct application. When we talk about being over familiar with Jesus 
and getting bored and discontent with Jesus and Jesus leaving behind lukewarm, nominal faith, our thoughts, understandably, immediately go to our children and grandchildren who we perhaps are raising in an, un, in an over-familiar with Jesus Christian bubble. Some of you maybe have wayward children. And what I've said this morning perfectly diagnoses the struggle they had with Christianity. It was just this little bubble of culture. Some of you are here in the heat of parenting right now, and you just don't want this for your children. The only thing I can say to you is to show them Jesus in his truest, rawest form. Repent before them. Don't hide your sin. Confess your sin and then tell those children about a Jesus strong enough to even save a sinner like their parents. Let them see him as a savior who actually is alive and active and changing your life. Let them see this savior who took their parent who was addicted to work and screens and cell phones and turned them into a parent who just shuts it off and is fully present with their children. Let them see him as a savior who took their greedy parent obsessed with money and turned them into a parent who's just recklessly giving in generosity. Let them see Jesus as a parent who could take their angry, fly-off-the-handle parent and all of a sudden, what has happened to my parent? There's such peace. There's such joy. Let them see, perhaps, let them see Jesus as the one who finally broke the addiction in their father or mother's life. Let them see a Jesus who changes the lives of their parents. Let them see him as the Jesus you struggle with in prayer and scripture. Let them see him as the Jesus whom you are willing to sacrifice in costly ways for. The Jesus who owns your finances. The Jesus who owns your time. The Jesus who creates a family concerned with mercy and justice towards the least of these around your family. Let there be no doubt in their minds and hearts that King Jesus reigns in this home. They may not be excited about their Sunday school Jesus. But the Jesus who is alive and active and transformative in their parents' life will captivate them. If that hasn't been the case, that's okay. Jesus can handle that too. He's that good. Repent before them and invite them to join you in your journey to rediscover the glory of Jesus Christ together. What does nominal, lukewarm American Christianity need? Our domesticated Jesus needs to be let out of his cage. We must repent of our over-familiar caricatures of Jesus and get to know the true Jesus who is not safe but is very, very good. Let me pray. Lord, help us with that. Unleash the Lion of Judah in this room, Holy Spirit, upon our hearts and upon our lives. Let, him, let us see you in all of your glory and majesty. Let it transform our lives. Let us be different because we came to church this morning. Change us. Change families. Change children. Come, Lord Jesus, in all of your might and majesty and glory and have your way with our lives. We confess for maybe the first time, maybe the first time being confronted like Jesus, with a Jesus like this or for the thousandth time, no matter what, we come to you again. We return to you again and confess, Jesus, you are king. You are Lord. We have no other. We pray in your name, which is the name above all names. Amen.